My name's Becky. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a member of the church here and I'm preaching this morning. Thank you. So we've been looking over the last few weeks, haven't we, at who we are in Christ. We've been asking the question, what does it mean to be in Christ, to be a Christian in essence? We've looked at the fact that we are dead to sin, but alive in Christ, that we are redeemed, that we are not condemned, and that we are seated in heavenly places, beautiful truths. This morning, we're going to explore being a new creation in Christ. My text for this morning is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see, the new has come. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, but I love new things. There is something captivating about the new, isn't there? If you were to ask my children, what new thing would mummy really like? They would answer without hesitation, fabric, because I love making my own clothes and sewing. And to me, having some pretty fabric come through the door is just wonderful, thinking what I'm going to do with it. I wager that if I said to you this morning, anyone that can remember the four main points of my sermon will be given the keys on their way out to a brand new car waiting for them in the car park, I bet you'd all pay very close attention, wouldn't you? We love new things. That's not happening, by the way. Steve said there wasn't enough budget for it. And in the Bible, we see a God who loves new things too. He loves to bring about the new. Within the very nature of who he is, is newness. As the Bible opens, as history begins, we see God doing a new thing. We see him creating the whole world fresh and new and perfect. And when we mess that up, which we do within the first couple of pages, when we say we don't want you, we want to do it our own way, and we step into the dire consequences of that, we see a God who says, don't worry, I'm going to make everything new. I'm going to sort this out. Throughout the tumultuous history of the Old Testament, time and time again, God speaks over his wayward people that he is going to do a new thing to rescue and redeem them. Look, he says in Isaiah 43, 19, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I'll make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And sure enough, he does. In the New Testament, we see this new thing beginning to come to fruition. We see God's rescue plan made good. We see Jesus, as he goes about his ministry, bringing newness to everything he touches. Water into wine. The blind seeing. The lame walking. Tax collectors and prostitutes. Fishermen and doctors starting their lives over again, being made new. We see Jesus living the perfect life we couldn't hope to achieve, dying the death that should have been ours and clothing us with his righteousness and holiness. Hebrews 9.15 declares Christ to be the mediator of a new covenant, a new promise for God's people that Jesus gives us a new and living way to access the Father. 
As the Bible closes in Revelation, we see God announcing that he is making everything new. The final fulfillment of his redemption will see God making a new heavens and a new earth. He's the God who loves to make everything new. It's who he is and it's what he does. And the most fantastic thing is, we get to be a part of this, right? We get to experience this newness. We see it displayed in our own lives as Christians. Paul tells us that we've been made into brand new creations. The old has gone, the new is now here. How exciting is that? That is worth exploring, isn't it? That is worth understanding a bit better. That is worth celebrating. So we're going to be exploring four being made new is statements this morning. Being made new is a second chance. Being made new is totally a work of God. Being made new is a complete transformation. And being made new is the freedom to walk in obedience. So, first point, being made new is a second chance. Have you ever wished that you could have a second chance at something? When I was a teenager taking my history A-level at um, a sixth form college in Sunbury, the college was so small that it couldn't afford to put on a history A-level on its own. And so it teamed up with a college a couple of miles down the road. And what was meant to happen was that I was meant to have half of my lessons at my college and half of my lessons at the college down the road. But it was raining quite a lot, to be honest. And The minibus was never running at the right times, and I was very shy, and I didn't really know anyone in my history class, so I just didn't really very often go to the other lessons. And at the end of the first year, we had to complete an assignment, and as the teacher was handing back the assignment, she accidentally handed my assignment back to a girl called Debbie, and Debbie's assignment back to me. Now, as soon as I got the assignment, I knew it couldn't have been mine because it had a big A-plus stamped on it, and I'm not an A-plus student. But poor Debbie, she was an A-plus student across the board, and she wasn't so quick to realise that the essay in front of her wasn't hers. And as I looked up, she was looking in abject horror and disgust at the D stamped on my work. And in that moment, I thought, oh, I really wish I could start this again. I've really messed this up. I wish I could have another go. And I thought, I know what I'll do. Next year, I'll go to all my lessons at, those college, at that college, and I'll work really hard, and I will improve on my D. And so the next summer, when the A-level results came out, guess what result I have managed to achieve in my history A-level with all my hard work and my striving? That's right, I've still got on a D. How often in our lives have we wished that we could start again? How many times have we tried really, really hard only to still fall short? My silly story about my history A-level only scratches the surface of the times that I've mucked up, of the friendships I've messed up, or the moments in parenting that I would give anything to go back and change. However hard I try, I can't make the grade. And that's true for all of us. We need help, right? We need something new. 
The God of the Bible, the God I know and love, offers us something unique, something unheard of in any other religion or philosophy or political movement. He offers us a genuine second chance. He's the God of a thousand second chances. And we see this throughout the Bible. There's not a person in there other than Jesus who gets it right, who doesn't need chance after chance. From Adam to Paul, from Eve to all the Marys. The Bible is full of people who needed not only a second chance, but actually a whole new life. That is what we need. We need a whole new life because we were dead to begin with. That's what the Bible said. Tim unpacked this at the beginning of our series. Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. One of my favorite Christmas movies, and no, it's not too early to start talking about Christmas. My favorite Christmas movies is A Muppet's Christmas Carol. And it begins with the line, the Marleys were dead to begin with. That one thing you must remember, or nothing that follows will seem wondrous. If we do not understand how dead we were to begin with, how hopeless we were, then we cannot understand how glorious the work Christ has done in us is. You and I, all of us, were born into a world that is dead and dying, into a body that is flawed and decaying, into a spirit that wants its own way rather than God's way. We were dead to the things of God. We could only look at and to ourselves, not him. That is the dead and awful state we were in. So what happened next, if you are a Christian or could happen next if you aren't, was that you heard about Jesus, right? Probably from many different sources, many different people in many different ways. But crucially, whatever it looked like on the outside, however long or short that journey was, God began to do a great work in your heart. He began to breathe on that heart of stone, on that dead heart, and turn it into a heart of flesh, as prophesied in Ezekiel 11, which leads us onto our second point. Being made new is totally a work of God. So we need this second chance. We need to be made new. But can something dead bring itself back to life? No. Of course it can't. Isaiah 53, 5 is talking about Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. The thing that was keeping us enslaved, the thing that was keeping us in our grave, the thing that was separating us from this new life and from God was our own sin and shame. And so Jesus steps in and Jesus steps up. Jesus took our deadness and our sin and shame and brokenness. It was nailed to the cross with him. Our old life was taken down to the grave with him. And then we were raised to life with him when we become Christians, a brand new creation. That's what the therefore means in our text today. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It means, therefore, since Christ died, we also died and have been raised with him and been made new. Let's make this very clear. Every single aspect of our salvation, of our coming to faith, and of our being made new was God's work, not ours. Our salvation is received, 
not achieved, Tim Keller says. And I think many of us in church settings understand this. We've certainly heard a lot about it over the last few weeks. It's living in the good of grace, understanding it at a heart level that we find a lot harder. John Eldridge claims this, this is what most Christians experience as the Christian life. Try harder, feel worse. Try harder, feel worse. And that is so sad, isn't it? I I do think it's true. I know it, it can be true in my life, but that is the opposite of what Jesus came to accomplish. And I know I have to stop myself slipping into that mindset. In the last few weeks, I found myself meditating on Ephesians 1, 4. For he chose us in him. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And as I stopped to think about this, I was overwhelmed with how beautiful it is. God chose us. How wonderful. When somebody adopts a child, one of the most beautiful things about it, in my opinion, is that they can say to their child, I chose you. I chose you. That is so powerful, isn't it? The God who made the heavens and the earth chose you. He says over you, I chose you before I'd even made a thing. Before I set the stars in the sky. Before I created the north wind. Before I set the earth into motion. I chose you. That's how precious you are to me. That is so beautiful, isn't it? The Father wanted you. You chose him, yes, but he chose you first. And that should encourage us as we seek to grasp how deep his grace is and how much it was his work in us. Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom Christ has set you free, has set us free. Stand firm then, stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let's be on our guard. The enemy loves to whisper lies to us in this area. The reality is we're completely free once we're in Christ. There is nothing you can do to add to or take away from your salvation. We are made new, seated in heavenly places, a son or daughter of the king. So we needed a second chance. It was completely God's work in our life. He has made us into a brand new creation. But what sort of new creation am I? What's happened to me? We're on to our third point. Being made new is a complete transformation. Did you know that insects are the most prolifically successful creatures living on our planet? For every one human alive today, there are approximately 250 million insects per person. Get your fly swatter out, right? 75% of those insects reach adulthood by the process of metamorphosis. Now, I don't know about you, but I just always assumed that when a caterpillar went in its little cocoon, it just had a sort of glow up, right? Went on a bit of a diet, lengthened its little legs, sprouted a couple of wings. I thought a butterfly was essentially a caterpillar with wings. 
Well, I discovered the other day that I was very wrong. Clearly, biology is not my strong point either. Inside the chrysalis, the caterpillar's body digests itself from the inside out until all that is left is just a liquid made up of imaginal cells, which are cells that can become any type of cell. These cells are then used to form a totally new creature, a butterfly. In the same way, when God makes us new, we are completely new creations. We are not caterpillars with wings. We are not sinful people with Christ's righteousness added on top. The whole of us is clean and new and different. The Bible uses seismic, arresting, incredible imagery to try and help us grasp how big this change is and how permanent it is. It talks about us going from slavery to sonship, from being far off to being brought near. It talks about us going from captivity to freedom, from death to life, from being asleep to being awake. It talks about us being reborn. When people say, I'm a born-again Christian, what they mean is a change has been made in me that is so seismic, so huge, that I'm a completely new creation. All Christians are born again, by the way. It's not a type of Christian. Just as all people had a physical birth, all Christians have a spiritual one. John Stott says this, we've not only been created in God's image, but recreated in it. We are not the same as before in any way. We see everything differently now. What we are aiming for is different now. What we are living for is different now. What rules us is different now. Our gaze has shifted from ourself to our maker. Whereas before we were looking to ourselves as Lord of our lives, trying to please the flesh and do things our own way, now we're able by his grace to look to him. He has raised our gaze. Shame has been removed. Now we want to please him. Now we want to do things his way. Now we're living in the spirit. We're completely new creations. Hallelujah. What a privilege. What a joy. But what sort of new creation are we? Well, the God who loves to make all things new promises us in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. It's who we are on the inside that's been made new. Think about what this means. Paul talks about this earlier on in this passage in Corinthians where he says we've been made new. He says our physical bodies might still be the same, but our spirit has stepped into eternity. It's already one with the Father. We are already living in the good of eternity. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Or Fillmore puts it like this. We groan for our resurrection bodies on the outside, but our spirits have already been raised to the life of the age to come on the inside. Isn't that incredible? We're already living with the joy of eternity in our souls. We have stepped into our inheritance as sons and daughters. Isn't that wonderful? This series of sermons is called In Christ, isn't it? But it's not just true to say that we are in Christ. When we are made new, it's also now Christ in us. 
Galatians 4, 6, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst? We're his temple. His spirit dwells within us. Isn't that incredible? He's in us and we're in him. This is seismic. The Jesus who turned water into wine. The God who made penguins and polar bears. The Holy Spirit who's full of power and truth lives in us. God has made his home in us. We're his living temple. This is the defining moment of our existence. What could compare to this? Not a new car in the car park, that's for sure. So we've been given a second chance. It was completely God's work in us. We've had a complete transformation. And finally, last point, being made new is the freedom to walk in obedience. Do you feel new? Do you feel like a new creation all the time? When you wake up tomorrow and the weight of the week's worries settle on your shoulders, will you bounce out of bed and shout, hurrah, I'm a new creation in Christ? When the electricity bill that you can't afford comes through the door, when you try once again to be rid of that sin that won't stop plaguing you, when you lose your temper with your colleague, Do you feel new? The reality is that whilst we've been made new and whilst God continues to make us new, our feet are still very much on earthly soil. And we can expect to feel that struggle and that tension throughout our lives. That's the reality we live with. But let's dive in a bit further to what does this look like then? What does it look like to live as a new creation? On the 19th of September 2001, at 9.01pm precisely, I became a mother. But as they wheeled me back onto the ward at midnight, I realised something. I realised I did not have a clue about actually being a mother. I didn't know how to feed my baby or change his nappy. And as I looked at this sleeping baby in my arms, I realised I didn't even know how to put him in his cot. I had to go and get a nurse. I thought I might break him. Just because I'd become a mother didn't mean I knew how to be a mother. It wasn't all downloaded in an instant to my brain because God is much more gentle in the way that he molds and shapes us. And the same is true of us becoming a new creation in Christ. Though we became completely new in that moment of salvation, though all our sin has been wiped away forevermore, actually the process of being sanctified, of being changed into the likeness of Christ is a journey that we will be on our whole lives and it's a beautiful fulfilling worthwhile journey we get to spend our whole lives being made new but that doesn't mean that it's always easy or straightforward it's not but God will be with us on it the whole time I have five children and my relationship with each of them is significantly different because they are significantly different people, right? The same is true with us as Christians. It's really unhelpful to look around and compare your walk with somebody else's. 
God knows you. He made you. And he is journeying with you at your pace and in a way that is appropriate for you and right for you. How you best engage with God, the ups and downs of your journey will be different for each person. But what we can all expect to see, whatever our walk with God looks like, is fruit. Martin Luther used the analogy of a tree. He says, God made us into a tree when we became new. Now we should expect to see that tree fruiting. As God walks with us and works with us and molds and shapes us, we should see ourselves becoming more and more like him. John 15, 5, this is Jesus speaking. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Because we now have the Holy Spirit living in us and because we are grafted onto Jesus, him in us, us in him, the natural outworking of that is fruit. But what sort of fruit? Well, not so much tangible fruit, but Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Are we growing in these fruits? It's a great measuring stick of our walk with God. Are we becoming more like him? Do we have more patience and love for others? Are we becoming more joy-filled? Can we look back at our lives and see that we are making progress towards him? There'll be ups and downs, obviously. Notice at the end of this, this verse, it says, the law is not against such things. When we look at verses from the Old Testament where God says to the Israelites, be holy as I am holy or be blameless and walk in my ways, for them this was a huge burden upon their backs. It was an impossible task. I mean, it is arduous enough just to read Leviticus with all those rules without actually having to keep them, isn't it? But when we read those verses through the lens of what Jesus has won for us on the cross, that he has fulfilled every letter of the law on our behalf, now those verses are promises. You are holy as I'm holy. You are blameless and walking in my ways. Now we're free to pursue holiness and purity and righteousness, not because our life depends on it, but because we love Jesus and we want to be like him. Isn't that wonderful? And when one pursues something out of freedom and love rather than fear or captivity, they find they are able to embrace it much more effectively. If we think about the slave and the son, the slave and the son may well perform some of the same tasks for the master or the father, but it's their motivation that is different. One is motivated by fear and captivity, the other by freedom and love. Because I am free, because I love Jesus, now I am going to pursue purity and holiness with a passion and fervor that slavery could never induce. Being made new is the freedom to walk in obedience That's the freedom that's been won for us. Eugene Peterson says this, obedience is not a stodgy plodding in the ruts of religion. It is a hopeful race towards God's promises. When we are obedient to God, we aren't just following a set of outdated, arbitrary rules. We're stepping into the future to come. 
We're stepping into a time when everything will be made new. We're ushering it in. We're saying, I believe in this future. I hope for it and long for it. Obviously, we will still sin. We will still mess things up, but we do so as people who are already forgiven and made holy. And therefore, we can race towards his promises and live a life of holiness. Philippians 1.6, I love this verse. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to carry it on to completion. Thank you, God. Recently, I began to feel a bit weary in my life. Now, this definitely shows some emotional immaturity in me, but remember, I'm on a journey too. And I began to feel like maybe my life wasn't as valid as most of my peers because I don't have a job. I'm a stay-at-home mom and a home educator. And I felt like I wish I had some validation. I wish someone gave me an annual review. I mean, has anyone else ever wished for an annual review? Probably not. Or a wage at the end of the month. I wish there was someone patting me on the back and saying, well done. And I understand, ironically, that the root of this is probably a lack of understanding of who we are in Christ. It'd be never so good for me, this series. Um, but God is so gracious, isn't he? And what happened was that God stepped in and he put a whole slew of people in my path who had walked similar roads to me and encouraged me. And at the same time, my lovely husband was reading a book entitled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A long obedience in the same direction. It's by Eugene Peterson. I quoted from it earlier. And this title just captivated me. What a beautiful description of the Christian life. And I remembered I wanted to be someone who walked a long obedience in the same direction. And then at the same time, I went to visit my elderly gran in Devon. She's nearly 96. She's going downhill fast. I'm not sure I'm going to see her, be able to see her again. But she is someone who has walked a long obedience in the same direction towards Jesus her whole life. Her earthly CV would be empty, but her heavenly CV is one of perseverance and purity. And she's in so much discomfort at the moment. She said to me, I just wish the Lord would take me home, Becky, but he must have a purpose for me because I'm still here. And then she blessed me in a way she couldn't have known or realized. She said to me, Becky, I want to give you a jug It was my grandmother's jug, she said, which means it must be my great-great-grandmother's jug. And I want you to have it because you've been following Jesus. And in that moment, I felt like God saying to me, this woman who has run her race so well is saying well done to you. And she's handing you on the baton and she's saying, imitate me as I've imitated Christ. And then I felt like God saying, this jug is your annual review. This jug is your wage. When I got home, my husband looked up how much this jug was worth. It's worth eight quid. But but to me, it's utterly priceless. And I hope one day when I'm old and grey to pass it on to my granddaughter if I have one. And I hope with all my heart that I can say to her, imitate me as I've imitated Christ. Walking along obedience in the same direction isn't glamorous. It doesn't pay well, not, not this side of eternity anyway. It isn't very exciting, but my goodness, isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? Don't you want that? Don't you want to honor the one who died for you by living a life of holiness, a life poured out for him? 
Yes, you're going to mess it up sometimes. We all are. But we're going to get up and dust ourselves down and carry on in that same direction. Don't you want to be old one day, like my gran, and look back at a life of love and obedience, perseverance and holiness? Don't you long for that with all that's within you? So we're coming into land now. We've been given a second chance. A whole new life, in fact. He's won us everything on that cross. He's chosen us. He has wiped away our old dead selves and made us into brand new creations. He's placed his spirit in us and given us a new heart so that we can run to him and enjoy pursuing holiness all the days of our life. He's the God who loves to make all things new and the best thing he's made new is us. Hallelujah. Can we have the band up, please? There are only two responses, I think, that are needed to this message this morning. If you aren't yet a Christian, this fresh start, this second chance, this being made new is on offer for you this morning. It's for anyone and everyone. You just have to say yes to Jesus. Admit you've messed things up. We all have. And that you need him to make you new. Admit that you want him to be Lord of your life instead of you. It's a great relief, I promise you. And the wonderful things I've been talking about this morning, all of them will be yours through Christ. Don't hang about because what waits for you on the other side of that decision is glorious. If you're already a Christian, we need to worship. We need to celebrate and thank God for his newness and his mercy that flooded our lives in that moment of salvation and that continues to make us new every morning. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. God, we thank you that you have made us new. We know that it is not something that we could ever do of our own volition. We could never make the grade, but you have made it for us. And we're so grateful that you've done that for us, Jesus. We love you. And God, we want to honor you. We want to be a people who walk in holiness and purity, not out of legalism, not because we're trying to earn our way to you, but because we love you. We love you so much, Jesus, and we want our lives to reflect that. We want to honor the one who died for us. We love you with all our hearts. God, may it be that one day we're old and gray and we can look back at a life lived for you. That is what we want. But God, we cannot do it without you. We cannot do it without the Holy Spirit. And we say, will you come and fill us with your Holy Spirit? Will you give us the strength to walk with you? Will you give us the strength to walk in holiness and purity all the days of our life? Amen.